So what I'm going to talk about tonight is I'm going to talk about this transport fuel security, but it's an example of a systemic issue we've got that goes way beyond transport fuel. Why do I deal in this sort of area? Uh, I was in a number of think tanks, one of which was Kokoda Foundation, it's now changed its name, and I was looking to do some work on the energy, water, food and climate nexus problem. I went to the Conservation Foundation and they said to me, if you're looking for funding for this type of thing, go to the NRMA. Because they're not just about cars, they're about the welfare, the interests of their members. Now I took their advice, Ian Dunlop, who I'm sure many of you know, he and I went to the board and Ian spoke about climate change and I spoke about energy using this as an example of systemic risks that we face in a society. And for the last three years now, the NRMA's had me consulting to them and actually developing some of this work. Uh, I'm moving back into that broader topic uh, to a greater degree next year. So I'm going to talk about this. I'll talk about some examples of energy alternate options there, but with a caveat, there's no point bringing alternate options in if it's going to damage your climate, your environment, and what actions needed. The cover there is of the second report I did for the NRMA last year, and there's also online the NRMA site a benchmarking report. So initially I looked at, do we have a problem? Well, yes. The second stage was, is there something we could do about it? Yes. And the third stage is, how do we compare to other countries? And that's what got very depressing. I produced that report late last year. I'll go through the story. It is down that narrow view of energy security, but as I go through this, what I try to do when I talk to the public is get them to question the assumptions they've made that things are actually under control. If they can do that on this example, which resonates very easy, because you can tell someone you could run out of fuel in a few days, that means something to them. If you tell them they're going to go past two degrees, they'll go, pardon? Yeah, I'll turn the aircon up. But I'm trying to use this as an example to get people to question things. Another caveat is that when I talk about politicians, Minister, I'm talking about the leadership of the two primary federal parties here. There was a fantastic uh, group of backbenchers, crossbenchers and others that I've come across in my dealings at the federal level who are intelligent, motivated, trying to do something. But the machinery is stopping them. So let's go into this. When I started looking at the space, I saw this diagram and it quite shocked me at the time a couple of years ago. And what it shows is two columns for each areas in industry 1973 and 2009 for transport and for other sectors. And the red is oil and the other colours are different types of energy. But what it really indicates is the lack of diversification in the transport sector, obviously because of transport and its high energy density with oil, but that lack of diversification where we've ended up to today, which is effectively total reliance on, on oil for our transport and therefore the whole functioning of our society. I didn't realise again before I started how diesel is actually underpinning everything from electricity to water supply, food production, food distribution and all the other parts that we would assume and we realise about you know, wanting to use our cars. I then had a little look at fuel trends, and uh, I'll just make sure that's turned on. Can you hear me at the back there? Okay. So as I start to look at the time frame from 2000 to 2000. How's that? Okay. We looked at a 13-year period, and you start to see that the oil be refined in this country is on an interesting trend. The amount of oil crude oil we've got, of course, the sources are reducing not much investment finding new ones, but that's decreasing. And back in the year 2000, 60% of the oil and fuel we used was imported. But as our demand has grown and we're importing more refined fuels, um, the amount that we're actually importing now is about 91% for transport purposes. But the graph's a little bit misleading, because refining capacity from this day is starting to fall off the cliff. So you actually don't see it when you look at that. 
So we're having a 42% loss at refineries between 2012 and 2015. If Vital, who bought the Shell refinery at Geelong, decide to close that, they're a fuel distributor. Their previous fuel refinery holdings around the world were collectively less than the size of the refinery in Geelong. So my view is they bought a distribution chain, which is a Shell distribution chain, and an import terminal, because it's hard to get import terminals in Australia. Um, I went and spoke to the Department of Industry and Science, as it's called now, and said, look, what's your policy? We see these refineries closing down. Is there a policy on the minimum amount of refining you need in country? Because, for example, if we're thinking about biofuels as a partial issue to a partial solution, you can't do that in a lot of cases unless you've got some sort of refining processing capacity in country. And the answer was that there's no decision. So one thing I did learn from defence is that when you decide not to make a decision, you've actually made one. Now, in the military, that can be fatal. Uh, in this case here, I think it has the same risk, but the government's decided not to make a decision. And this is not just the current one, it's the previous minister as well, and the Labor. And that means that there is no policy to have any refining capacity in Australia at all. The market will decide what makes sense. That's reassuring. When you look over that time, so from 2007 refineries down to four heading, I believe, to zero without some of them, although there was a, a, an article, I think, in today's uh, news about a, a small-scale refinery possibly being built at Gladstone by private investor funds. Uh, equity. Days of stock, we think we had something more than about 30 days of fuel stocks in the country, pretty hard to determine for reasons I'll come to, and our import dependency was 60%, we're at 90%. The Australian Institute of Petroleum, a very well-funded lobby group for all the big fuel companies, maintains we have about three weeks supply in the country. Um, but if we go 100% dependency, um, we're going to be way less than 20. And I'll come back to what I think the figures are today. I also went to look at the International Energy Agency's stockholding level. So as a member country, you're required to have what's called 90 days of net oil imports. That's not real fuel, because what they do is they calculate the fuel you're, and oil you're importing, rather the oil you're importing, what you're exporting, they subtract it, and they look at the, the, the number of days of supply of that deficit. In Australia's case, what we export is light sweet crude, which most of our refineries can't process. So in the case of an interruption, you can't just divert that oil supply of exporting back into the refineries, it won't work. It will for mobile than nothing else. So in that case, um, 98 days fuel actually translates to about three, three or four weeks of actual real fuel, the way the calculation's done. So, Australian values 60 days at this point I looked at back at the end of 2013, we're down to about 52 now, um, is the only member country out of all the IEA that doesn't meet its stockholding obligations. And we've been ignoring that. The IEA actually telephoned me, or actually emailed me, and then we had a long conversation and said, can you figure out what's going on with your government? So, oh, fine. So we had long talks about what's happening, and they said to me a few months ago that the other member countries were getting so sick of this. The IEA itself couldn't apply pressure because they're a coordinating body, but the other member countries have had enough of Australia not pulling its weight. And we're applying a lot of pressure behind the scenes, and we'll see that result in the current energy white paper. So the ninth largest energy producer in the world is the lowest and only non-compliant member of the IEA in this area. Now, if you solve this, does it solve off your security problem? No, it doesn't. But it's an indicator of the lack of priority or appreciation of our responsibilities as a part of a global organisation. Um, the only member in the IEA that doesn't have a refinery is Luxembourg. So we're going to join Luxembourg the way we're heading. So I think we're going to have a look at, okay, how do we benchmark ourselves against other countries? And this is the report I produced late last year. So Australia sitting over here has no government-owned stocks at all. 
and we don't mandate for our industry, the fuel companies, how much stock they should hold. So you come across to Japan, they've got 70 days mandated and 80, uh, sort of 85 in stock. Korea's got 123 days owned by the government, 40 days mandated. You come into Europe, Europe has two standards. You either meet the IEA standard or you have to have a minimum of 61 days real fuel stocks, whichever is the higher. And you can look across the top, they actually mandate some countries higher levels than that. Some countries don't have government-owned stocks, but they have the system in place. Now, I think in, with either Denmark or one of these other countries, Norway, if you don't meet your mandated stock levels, it's sort of like a million euro fine. Now, to go with this, nearly every other country around actually requires you to report on your stockholding levels. We don't require industry to report on their stockholdings in Australia. So, you know how the government's actually working out the stockholdings and how defence does it? They reverse engineer customs and taxation data. It's not trying to work out the speed of the car by measuring the tyre temperature. You know, it's done. Uh, the report done by the Department of Industry in 2013 uh, that looked at mandatory reporting because the Energy White Paper in 2012 said they were going to do it. The report said it's not a problem, it's not going to be a costly exercise and industry won't object. The department told me a few months ago we're not doing it because the current government doesn't want to have any more regulations. Now, if you want to understand the stock holdings or risk or make a decision on something, you need data. The failure to even mandate reporting is madness and we're the only developed country that doesn't do it. So I started to look at other countries. The light blue is the IEA members. Canada's an IEA member, but it's an oil exporter. So it doesn't have to comply with the IEA holdings. It's a net oil exporter. The dark blue were just the countries that we could find data on. So we looked at a couple of things. Uh, New Zealand, of course, is an IEA member. Well, Australia's unique. We're the only oil important developed country in the world that doesn't have any of the following three. Public land stocks, or mandated commercial stockholdings, or government control and participation in the fuel supply chain. So what's happened is successive governments have outsourced to industry the complete control, management, and stockholding requirements to the commercial sector without any reporting or knowledge of what's happening. Now, of course, industry likes it that way because they're not told to stop holdings. They don't have government interfering in anything they do. They don't have to report. And we can trust them because they have our... Sorry, they're interested in So you go and look at the G7, and that's not all European, of course, and they had this meeting in Rome in May 14, and they were talking about this energy security and they talked about some pretty obvious things about diversification of supplies was essential. But this lot one here is they were putting in place emergency response systems, including reserves and fuel substitution, in case of a major air disruption. That sounds prudent. Paragraph 8 of their initiative for energy security came out with a joint statement from the ministers, and they said this, you've got to have timely investments to supply energy, and you can't build an energy security system according to market rules. It requires political leadership decisions and a degree of government control. So that's the G7. Meanwhile, if you look in the area, ASEAN, it's actually ASEAN plus three, have been moving towards this regional energy framework, and they're all looking since 2008 at regional fuel stockholdings. Japan's helping them look through this. And Japan's doing an enhanced strategic tolerance and crisis management system. China right now is buying up huge amounts of cheap oil, to be cheap for its strategic stockholders. 
and they're actually building that in, in China. Where do we get most of our refined fuel from? There. Now the countries from which we buy our refined fuel are going ahead and building stock holdings and reserves and emergency processes. Now we have none. So if there was a supply problem, why would these countries from whom we buy our fuel give us fuel out of their stock holdings? I can't see why they would. So we're just assuming that the market will continue to provide us fuel in a case like that. That's fantasy. Because the other interesting thing is, is where is the area that we're worried about for future regional stability? There. So if there was a, a regional military problem, security problem, would that affect our supply? So keep that in the back of your mind, because surely the government and the energy white papers and security assessments would have looked at that question. It's only common sense. So what does the Australian Institute of Petroleum tell us we have in the stockholders? They say two weeks of seeing we should be able to count in our stocks. Well, the International Energy Agency says, no, you can't do that because it's not in Australia. Uh, they looked at these figures across there, and it came up to something like 21 days if you add up what was in the country here. But if you go to the Bureau of Resources and Energy Economics report from the middle of 2014, and you start to look at what were the levels that they were calculating, you end up with some figures like 12 days of diesel oil in the country. But even they don't know because industry doesn't report to them, so they reverse engineer data. When the Department of Industry appeared before the current Senate inquiry on transport energy resilience is ongoing at the moment, in February this year, the senators said to them, do you know how much fuel stocks we have in Australia? And after some mumbling, the poor DEPSEC said no. And if you want to read a very interesting hand read that one. So anyway, they were told to go away and come back with an answer. So they came back in April to the second set of Senate inquiry hearings in Melbourne and said 35 days. So I think what they've done, reverse engineering the data, they've aggregated all the different types of fuels and things, including heating oil, and come up with 35 days. Well, that figure's useless. If you don't know the type of fuel and where it is, you don't understand the risks you face. Now, when I've looked at the uh, emergency procedures for management of fuel supply interruptions, which is run by each state, although the federal government's involved, when I've read the procedures, they don't start to take rationing measures until week three. So... You don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that three weeks is longer than 12 days. So, are there any indicators that those lower figures might be right? In late 2012, in Victoria, there was a problem at the Geelong refinery because of power supply, uh, frequency fluctuation. They went offline. <clears throat> Mobile was doing something at Altona they hadn't told anybody about. Within two days, they ran out of diesel in northwest Victoria and in Gippsland. Now, my brother-in-law, who's a farmer in Bendigo, was right in the middle of trying to take the crop off. Uh, they were talking about getting groups of farmers together with utes and other trucks and driving to New South Wales to try and pick up diesel to get the crop off. Now, he was about to lose $100,000 in his crop. Now, to Caltex or Shell or anything else, 100000 is nothing, but I've got to tell you, a farmer, a small farmer, that's a lot of money. Two days after a problem that happened. In West Australia, where they thought they had a tanker problem with some contamination, uh, I think it was last year, they started to have shortages in town in two days. In the middle of pitch black, the major military exercise, uh, I think it was last year, the tanker came in, they thought it was contaminated. At that stage, they fessed up, they had one day's fuel left in the Northern Territory. We just about ran out of fuel in Western Australia, the MH370 search and rescue operation. 
and I had been told behind the scenes that we'd been down one day to a Christmas island in the middle of the refugee patrols. So <clears throat> I somehow doubt this wonderful figure of 35 days that the department has just told the senators, which we're going to be talking to the senators about because we think it's fancy. So no public stock holdings, no mandated reporting. The other thing is when you talk about this, very few people can comprehend what it would look like to run out of fuel. Most of the audiences I talked to were sort of not out of school in the 70s or last time we had rationing. So can you imagine how to try to do that today? I use this not to light the MH370 issue, but when you start to see some of the headlines, and I'm told this is real, I mean, the Boeing 7 will struggle to maintain altitude once the fuel tanks are uh, I mean, I fly a glider. It's not a Boeing 777. So when people look at that, I talked to Vince, I said, have you got any idea you know, what your stockholders are at the garage, about three lanes? And people don't look at the supply chain to understand what these vulnerabilities are. I didn't look at this when I was the Deputy Chief of the Air Force. I'd assumed that we had logistic supply chains in place and contracts and it was all taken care of. Well, after I started doing this when I got out, I found out, no, it's not. Uh, point of sale stocks, so when I did the first report about 2013, even about chilled goods, seven days in the supermarket, dry goods, seven to nine, hospital pharmacies, if there was a pharmacy warehouse and hospital, because a lot of them, because of cost overheads are okay, straight from a commercial warehouse to water. Then three days, go to your local chemist, they've got seven days. Prescription, like I do sometimes for a couple of months or something, they can't fill it. They have to go out and special order it. A lot of older people and the pensioners can't afford to go in and do a large fill, and they actually have to go in every couple of weeks and get the medications they need. If you can't deliver the supplies to the local chemist, what's going to happen? Well, the garages only have about three days in. In the States, it's far worse. They sometimes only have like 24 hours of fuel going because the rate is going through there. So the resiliency in the supply system is bad. And as our IT systems and logistics change get much better, proves supply chain efficiency drives all this to the left because it's lower cost. I got told by people in the industry, in the refining industry, that some of these companies drive their stocks down, their stock holdings down, at the end of the calendar year because that aligns with the United States financial year reporting system. And what happens at the end of the calendar year? We are in a harvest season. So you can see some of these companies are clearly driving stuff down to minimise their stock holding on the books. It's not their problem if we run out because you know, it, there might be a branding issue. When I've spoken to very senior level people in the companies, they said, look, our job is reliability of supply, trying to do the right thing for the customer. And they will spend money to do it. But they very clearly said to me their job is not security of supply. That's a government job. So the Australian Super Patrol guy, I love it dearly, they came to this Senate inquiry recently and they said, look, we haven't had a problem for decades. So therefore there's nothing to worry about because the market works. And they also said the National Energy Security Assessment, which normally precedes energy white papers, it's about supply security and energy policy and how Australia is served by the market. It doesn't consider national security settings, that's the role of defence. So what I'm leading to, and I'll show you shortly, the National Energy Security Assessment done previously, which is still the only one current for this white paper, never looked at any military scenarios in the region at all. Nothing. So what we've done on the energy assessments is absolutely naive. Now, I often use this quote from the Japanese government panel reviewing the Fukushima nuclear incident. And this bottom one's important. 
the utility and regulatory bodies were overly confident that events beyond the scope of their assumptions would not occur. And they're also not aware of the measures to avoid the worst situation were actually for the polls. That is exactly where we are. And the last two months, the industry lobby body for the fuel companies saying, don't worry about it. It hasn't happened for 30 years, it's not a problem. And we're not going to look at anything outside of commercial operations because that's not the energy security white paper's job. You've got to wonder about these people. So this is a bit of a messy diagram. It's what I did for senators who were doing this inquiry. So here we are in Australia, and the government has a very limited analysis of the national energy security assessment. We're unique amongst developed countries in the world with zero government stocks and industry mandated stocks. We're 100% reliant on the market, and there's no plan B. There is no plan of what we could do with red wrong, apart from, well, industry will fix it. So we've passed the buck to industry. Now, these are quotes from the Australian Institute of Petroleum. The national security scenarios are not appropriate for fuel supply, and it's not the role of fuel distributors, and this is the big fuel companies, to hold buffer stocks to guarantee on business, ongoing business operations during a major fuel supply disruption. It's not their job. That's the job of industry fuel users. So what they've done is they've passed the buck over here to the users. At the same time they did it, they had this brilliant statement. Many larger users hold only limited stocks on the expectations that the stocks will be held by government. But many business and fuel users incorrectly believe they're essential users and they'll get preferential treatment. So, of course, you go around the merry-go-round, the queues, and they think the government's doing it, they think they're doing it, they say it's not my problem. Now, they publish this. And you think somebody read it. Because this is, this is Python, absolute Monty Python. So, <clears throat> again, I'm not a logistician. When I did this first report in 2013, I thought, let's go back to basics. So I drew a map with the help of graphic artists, and we had a look at some examples, supply chains, and we said, look, Getting fuel to you, you have to look at sources, the trading system, shipment, ports, refining, transport, storage, points, supply and demand. And each of those areas has potential failure points. Now, Australia's a bit different. About 90% of our demand is met by, this is total imports, is met by sea trade. The global average is 65%. So we're very, very dependent on those global supply, sea, uh, sea supply chains. These are the only two scenarios we examined in the last National Energy Security Assessment. A repeat of the Middle East oil supply of the 70s for a month, and a refinery outage in Singapore for 30 days. And that's all they looked at. So I went to the company that did the analysis. <coughs> so what the department does, they don't do it themselves, they find a consultancy to do a report that actually gives them the report parts that they want. They get paid a lot of money to do it. But when you look at this, you've got to go, hang on, how about that area up there if something went wrong? Are there any single points of failure in our distribution networks? And the Coombs truck one's a very good example. So when you looked at that, so that's, you know, I, I come from a background of strategic policy and scenarios and effects. I've done a lot of this work, but this is naive. The classic was that one of the consulting companies <coughs> who they paid to do this work said, look, under some extreme rare scenarios, the market may cease to function as normal. Brilliant. And the extent of any response to such an event will likely involve sovereign national interests that may cut across or override what all markets might see as efficient and desirable. And again, they wrote this and the department put it on their website. So you go, are we on the same planet here? Because nobody reads the stuff on the department website, see me. But when you look through training systems and the interruptions from you know, economic disturbances, because the whole shipping system runs on credit, 
And if you have a credit problem, what happens to the shipping systems which are no longer at all under Australian control? So we don't have any Australian flagships or homeships. On the ports and refineries, there are regular capacity issues, accidents, incident ships. Who owns it? Now, I think 50% of one of the big refineries in Singapore is now Chinese owned. So who actually owns this infrastructure? How that might affect prioritisation of where the resources go. On the transport, we no longer can move fuel in Australia by rail, except within some closed mining systems in North Australia. Everything goes by truck. Now, who would have thought that these characters were failing so fundamentally in their, in their maintenance issues that they ended up killing, I think, two accidents, killing a bunch of Australians and burning them, and when that's finally realised, they got taken off the road. I think you saw some minor perturbations here in Canberra, but in Melbourne, that they had a serious fuel supply problem. Because I think 75 or 80% of the road distribution system was by them, and they clearly weren't being monitored. The problem is, is our road distribution system is designed to be just in time and just the right amount for normal day-to-day -day commercial operations. So I pose a question to you. If we had to go into a military defence in Australia, do you think that distribution system, which is no trains, could actually be enough to support our military and operation in Australia? Depots points to supply, there's a real issue there. And of course, what's the energy high risk? We'll be able to keep using the types and amount of energies we do today. That doesn't appear anywhere in any of the analysis. It must be somebody else's responsibility. I spoke to Blair Conley about this a fair bit at the start, just before he got asked as a secretary. And the department has So why is this happening? That There's a lot of studies and pieces that look at this, but nothing seems to have happened. Why? I think because there's not a simple solution. It's all complex. It's interlinked. And you have to address the problem systemically, because there's no point fixing a problem here if you don't have a cascading problem when you suddenly realise that coal to liquid conversion is not a good idea. The other question here is that many of the questions posed by the politicians, and again, broad term, but I'm talking about the ones I've appeared before in some inquiries, is how much extra storage do you want? And how much extra per litre will Australians be prepared to pay? Well, storage is not the answer by itself, because if you've got two weeks storage or four weeks, if the problem lasts four weeks, you're still going to starve. Fuel security in this example is about flow. You have to have a percentage of your fuel supply continuing to flow. So storage alone is not the solution. And what are people willing to pay? In Finland, they charge one cent a litre surcharge to cover fuel stockholding and pharmaceutical stockholdings. They also have stockholding policies right across a range of critical supply chains. And there's an example of what people are prepared to do. So what fuel supply is about looking at what's imported, what's Australian, a tank, which is your processing and storage area, and demand. There is no point in addressing fuel security if you don't look down here first. How do you minimise demand? How do you rationalise this? And, and again, some of the work that you can see happening in the ACT, looking and asking these questions about transport, are absolutely clear. As the Minister said, looking at that change in old transport mode is a fundamental first step. So what we've been pushing for in the report is to firstly reduce our demand, fuel efficiency, energy productivity elements, decide what proportion of fuel supply needs to be secure, Determine what the least costly but environmentally acceptable way of doing it, look at the supply-demand balance, and then look at the pure the measures to ensure secure sources. So if you shut all your refining industry off, you can kiss off a lot of your biofuels as an option. There's no process them anyway. So you've got to keep a capacity in country to utilise the range of source materials we have to produce a range of environmentally acceptable fuels at an acceptable cost. That's a huge problem. 
This diagram comes from some reports done by the NRA by a group called Jameson Group. They were a group of uh, CSIRO and retired CSIRO scientists who did some excellent work, and their reports are on the NRA side as well. So what's the vector? <coughs> right now, 10% of our fuel supply is secure. I would argue because it comes from Australia. The supply infrastructure is in decline, but fuel demand is increasing by a mixture of consumer behaviour, consumption standards, the fact that we're still pulling subsidies into it, and transport substitution problems. 5% of the freight on the East Coast goes by rail, everything else is by road in the East Coast of Australia. So I'm now pulling up some information from the climate work study that came out last year. This is looking at the fuel economy in miles per gallon of fleet vehicles, comparing Australia, the US, Canada, to EU and Japan. And when I saw this, are we going to be joking? Our fuel economy is so low. They <coughs> said if we purely brought into Australia the EU fuel efficiency or standards, here's what would happen. We'd save $8 billion a year in fuel. We'd eliminate 66 million barrels of imported oil per annum. And we'd reduce CO2 emissions by 8.7 megatons per annum. So it's like taking 2.2 million cars off the road. So must be special cars you'd have to have. Well, it's not. Because the <coughs> Department of Infrastructure and Transport source here, when you look at passenger vehicles and the uh, average CO2 emissions per vehicles by brand, so each of these are brands, on the left-hand side in the dark is that same car in Australia and what its CO2 emission levels are, and on the lighter colour is that same car, model and brand, in Europe. So what actually happens is the cost for the modifications for vehicles, which are produced in production line, is I think about $1,400-$1,500. You actually save about $850 a year in fuel on average. So you get a payback within two years. Now, we don't have a car industry protecting them all. Why aren't we, for example, just requiring that we meet those standards? It, it, it just begs question. Oh, I can't have a regulation. Um, when I looked at the alternates, without getting the complexity about the oil issues, you can very easily look at gas to liquids, uh, biofuels, LPG, electric vehicles, and other sources. And if you look in that area of what you can control in Australia, I said it's not going to be at all difficult with existing technologies to acceptably have about 30% of our fuel supply resourced, processed, and delivered within this country. Yeah, I put that as an example because that might be enough to keep the whole system, the, the critical functions running, if there was a major interruption. And if you do it, it's a no-brainer. Biofuels, uh, globally, is about 1.9% of transport use. In Australia, it's 0.8%. Uh, 50 countries have biofuel blending mandates and targets, but not here. We've got that ethanol issue in New South Wales, but it's not followed through properly. Um, and the thought about having to assist the development of these, particularly second generation, and beyond biofuels in the Australian market, uh, understandably, let's see what the environmental implications are of some of those, but the ability to help that market get up is not going to happen because in discussions with the minister, they will not put one more cent into biofuels in this country. That's it. Put too much money into it. It hasn't become commercially active. And you look at that and go, hang on, let's have a look at what all these other countries are doing. The need to develop diversity in fuel supplies, what you could do within this country, uh, it's just crazy what's going on. The Biofuels Association are pulling their hair out. LNG and CNG, yes, there's a reduction of CO2 emissions. You've got a resource for about 50 years. Is that the end solution? It's a part of the journey, but is it environmentally acceptable? The infrastructure to trigger the transformation to these sort of areas is not going to happen just with industry. It's going to require a degree of shaping by government. 
if you see what countries such as Norway and Denmark have been doing to shift themselves to a different energy base, that's investment. Because the Norwegians, I think a prime example, use of their future fund, which is far more effective than ours, to actually reshape their environment and their, and their, and their economy. It's just a, a great example that five million people have done and they're far more successful than we have. Hydrogen's interesting, <coughs> depending on where you source the hydrogen from. Some interesting examples appearing in the US of what they're doing there. And certainly Hyundai launched their hydrogen vehicle on the first of April. Unfortunate date, but uh, they launched it up in Sydney and they'll have it on the market in about 2017. So there are alternatives to look at, but they will not emerge by themselves without some policy environment that's supported. Right. <laughs> it's time for a break. Oh, great. Right. So, is oil going that way? And you start to look at the whole issues of the processing costs and the environmental implications that we go for, right? I'm sure you all across those issues to great depth. That doesn't give me great reassurance. The EOI issues which are across there that have to be taken into consideration. But still, where our biofuels and solar city and wind needs to be far, looked at far greater, I think. But what can we do about the midterm issues? <clears throat> what we're saying in our approach looking down this fuel and energy line is purely to the government. You've got to have a plan, but it has to have a lot more comprehensive analysis than we've done to date. That security level analysis was naive. And the government's approach is so far as they look, the market has sorted out. They don't even know what fuel levels they have. The analysis is not being done. The current energy security assessment that should have been done before this energy white paper was just released is not happening until now after the energy white paper is released. <coughs> now, if you don't think that that security assessment is going to be reverse engineered to justify the white paper they've just released, then I think you've been naive. We need to benchmark our approach, and I've talked to government a lot about examples in Norway and Denmark. We were just in Denmark a, a couple of weeks ago, and you have a look at what they're doing. I mean, the amount of wind generation they're doing. They're actually ripping car parks out of Copenhagen and planting trees. They're electrifying their buses and taxis. Uh, you look at this whole environment, and we spoke to quite a few of the, the local population, because it's high taxes, 56%. So what do you feel about this? It's said, well, the investment that we're actually making for the benefit of our community in the long term is worthwhile. So everything from highly educated people to just folks on the street that we ended up talking to, it was a common theme. Ownership, responsibility of the individual to produce a better outcome. I mean, here we are celebrating this nice budget, which is short-term rubbish. Uh, you start to look at what some of these people are doing and you go, now there's a good social approach. So what's appropriate government role? We've got to have that discussion. Supply security, diversity. What's a level playing field? When we're pouring so much money both directly and as a result of the environmental damage of the fossil fuels, to say we're not going to put one more cent in biofuels because we haven't produced a magic result in a few years, is actually bad. And the other thing that I'm trying to push is don't have blind faith in an industry that's there about making so money. And I've got no problem with industry making money. But don't give them the control. And that's effectively what we've done. So we're recommending to the Senate inquiry a few things that have to happen. If you don't understand what you have, you don't have the basic data, you can't make a risk assessment. So you've got to do that. We need a whole of government risk assessment that supply the availability, the vulnerabilities for a whole range of areas. We need to, with the business community, work out appropriate target for domestic secure supply of transport energy. We have put a suggestion that might be 30%, but that has to be sustainable energy. It can't be, we'll do something with coal. 
And that plan, we need a transport energy plan for Australia that's secure, affordable and sustainable. This is fairly basic, but those elements have not been done by either this government or the previous one. And we need a policy environment that understands the strategic importance of improved transport energy resilience and sustainability. Otherwise, we're not going to get the investment. <coughs> so the political dialogue. So after the energy white paper comes out, Minister McFarlane gets up on late one and goes, do Australians want us to remain compliant? Do they want to actually be paying billions and billions of dollars to be compliant with the treaty? Now, isn't that an intelligent way of explaining to the community what the risks and issues are and considerations? I mean, that is stunning. I was actually just blown away. I thought, this might be serious. Is that the way to have a proper dialogue with the public? In other words, you want billions of dollars to study a treaty. Senator Madigan, who's been one of the pushers behind the Senate inquiry, came up with a pretty good statement. How do we even contemplate it? So what is it the department knows, the minister knows, the government knows, that the rest of the world doesn't know? <laughs> minister Bishop came out and said, look, you know, she totally disagreed. That was great to see. But if that's the sort of level of dialogue we're trying to have about a very important issue, that's fairly depressing. Of course, it gets worse because it's the energy white paper. It has one paragraph on fuel supply reliability, but it's not a problem because the markets have worked. So those diverse supplies, uh, existing stockholding, which of course we don't know what it is, and the at-sea tanker ranges, which you can't count according to the IEA, it's fine. And we're going to monitor this through the NISA, which doesn't address national security issues and the markets. So that's reassuring. Of course, there's only one paragraph on climate as well which doesn't say much at all, but it does mention climate two or three times. And when I look at this, it's a sad reflection of a lack of foresight vision of leadership. It's a lack of system thinking, and I think it's willful blindness. I use the fuel discussion, which is a critical one, because people can relate to what does it mean if I run out of fuel next week, both for their way of life and everything they need. But that problem, which is exemplified in the fuel supply chain, is common across the whole lot. Leaving our future in the hands of the market is frightening, given what motivates the market. And if no other developed country does it the way we're doing it, why? Letting our politicians, and again, my apologies for the generic term, and economists lead us down that path is irresponsible on our part. I had a long talk as an economist, I don't understand this sort of stuff, I said, can you tell me how the economy's going to work when we're closing down refineries, so chemical production, which is a real issue, chemicals and all the byproducts, uh, we're losing our fertiliser industry overseas because of gas prices. You know, aluminium is disappearing. Well, how's our economy going to work? It's not a problem. We're going to become a services economy. <coughs> and, yeah, I said, so the regional countries in 30 years with a lot more educated people are still going to buy services from us? Uh, yeah, I can't believe where we're going. And, of course, I get taken the uh, comment you tweeted the other day. I think Christine Melvin said, with people not economic units, we live in a society and not an economy. The Department of Industry and Science does not get that. Yeah, you know, nice people in there, but they have no idea outside of a very basic economic model. I think we need to run a captain of course about thought, both as individuals and a community. I see as I go around and talk to a lot of community groups like this, and the radio and the talk about radio we've done with NRMA, folks get it, but they just haven't got the information there. I'm hoping that over time they'll get this is one issue because like so cards. And if we can get people questioning not only just this, but the broader systemic risk we face, as a very isolated 
country in reality in terms of where the supply chains are, uh, with a greater dependence than a lot of other countries have. And not necessarily uh, names like you have in Europe who might try to help you. We might be a bit more realistic. Should we be concerned? I am. Uh, we went out an electric car, put four million kilowatts on the roof. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, it was a good experience. But of course, if you're looking at zero carbon issues or low carbon issues transport, you look at power supply, and I think what ACT government's doing and looking at the amount of green energy it's going to do in the future, where Tasmania is now, uh, that makes sense. It's actually changed the way we drive the diesel car. We reduced our diesel fuel consumption by 0.5 litres under kilometres around town because the energy feedback you get continuously in the electric car gets you to understand the impact of distance versus stop starts, the effect of terrain, and it's, it looks you in the face. So that, plus on my desk at home, we've got what's being produced off the roof and what we're using, and you get a bit of that parallel about time shifting and power consumption. But very simple feedback mechanisms, they do it. Joe Average is not going to spend the $52,000 we did to get the solar power in that car. If you're a lot of money, you go buy a Tesla and pretend you're fully group. But there is something about this that's going to work, but the take-up's far too slow. You compare it to San Diego, I think 700 stations, or recharge stations there. Uh, was it 15 percent years? I think it was their sort of current electric car. Uh, where the Americans are going, where they're going in uh, Scandinavian countries with this. The incentives they use in terms of you can you know, travel in the bus lanes, you don't pay parking, you can do all sorts of things. And what's our incentive here? Well, the market will fix that. So, bottom line is that the times are changing. We'll all be ruined. So, Chris.